we seek to uh, get insight into your your word, into your workings, into uh, you, and to uh, humbly come before you and uh, learn of you. And we seek that this morning, Father. We uh, ask your blessing on this time and uh, your help to see and understand. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let's see here. This, uh, this is uh, one more biography in uh, Piper's book, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. Um, and I want to... If you can't see it, I want to emphasize the subtitle there, uh, Faithful, Flawed, and Fruitful. Um, <clears throat> this morning we're looking at the life of David Brainerd. Now, how many of you, can I just see a show of hands, who's heard the name David Brainerd? Okay. And... Uh, So, so we'll be looking at his life. Uh, yeah, as you can see, um, he, uh, he didn't live long. Uh, my last biography, Ch Charles Simeon, lived to be, I think it was 70-something, 70 74, I can't remember, and, uh, 54 years of ministry. Uh, he had about four years of ministry, approximately. Uh, they both were converted at, at about the same age, uh, just before they went into to university or as they went into the first year of university. Uh, of course, uh, David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians in the Northeast and uh, <clears throat> And Charles Simeon was uh, uh, an academic. He had a rather, besides his troubles with his, uh, his congregation, he had a relatively easy life. And David Brainerd did not <laughs> have an easy life for various reasons. Um, oh, by the way, I, I, I chose two pictures uh, to uh, portrayals of David Brainerd, partly just to give you an idea. Uh, of course, one, <clears throat> the one on your left is uh, perhaps, I mean, it, it may be accurate, but is par par partly the kind of the popularized version of David Brainerd. Uh, the one on the your right, uh, it, I mean, if you think he has kind of a sickly pallor, then that's true. He was, he was quite ill and uh, suffered from depression and other things most of his life. So I wanted both of these here together. Someone, I don't know who painted this one, but it, it was kind of pretty accurate. And you can kind of see there kind of faded in is a, an Indian who he ministered to. <clears throat> um, I just want to touch again on the the approach I'm taking uh, 
this is a repeat from the first uh, my first biography. Uh, <clears throat> we so we we can consider for a moment the, uh, why what these bi biographies are and what their usefulness might be to the church. Uh, these are spiritual biographies. Um, and there's a couple of verses there that uh, help us see the, the value of looking at some of these lives. Um, the first one, of course, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And then later on in Hebrews, uh, consider the outcome of the, the, your leader's way of, of life and imitate their faith. Uh, and of course, the the... The scriptures themselves show us biographies, if you will, uh, like Hebrews chapter 11. So a spiritual biography is a look at the history of the work of God in the life of a fellow Christian. Uh, someone who, like us, who, who is flawed and, and uh, suffers the same, same issues in one way or another and how they how God worked in their lives. Um, <clears throat> and by looking at a, a, a person, a Christian from the past, we can see, um, especially get insight and perspective uh, because we're children of our times and we, we need a different perspective in, a, in looking at a, the view, the life of someone in the past is a, is a way of gaining that. Um, and by, by kind of going through this, this basic approach, we look at a person's life before conversion, uh, their conversion, and, and the fruit of that, their Christian life and experience, um, including their weaknesses and flaws and strengths and gifts, what kind of ministry they had, their, uh, their latter years, and their death, and what kind of influence they had, whether it's continuing or immediate influence, all with an aim of seeing God's work in and through them. Uh, <clears throat> I, I should say right up front that uh, my view of David Brainerd has kind of taken a big leap forward, what I hope is forward anyway, uh, in these, uh, by, by this study. Um, I think my view of, of Brainerd at this point, I mean, if you've been around Christian circles for a long time, you, you eventually hear that name and, uh, and get kind of the popularized picture of, of David uh, Brainerd, you know, riding across the, that part of uh, America and <clears throat> and ministering to the Indians. Uh, um, my view of him was perhaps distorted by a popular interpretation uh, and application of his life uh, uh, by my own laziness and ignorance from looking into it. Art said he has read his uh, diaries that were published by Edwards and, uh, and I didn't do that until, th until this study. I happened to stumble across a, an old edition online of uh, the, that, and, and that helped a lot. Um, but if you find Brainerd 
and your understanding of him in your current understanding of him to be uh, off-putting. I, I mean, I did. Um, or, uh, or otherwise, if you find him to be a complicated person, well, he was. I mean, he was a complicated person. Uh, and sorting through his life and, and finding instruction from it, you, kinda, you do have to sort. But uh, I would recommend reading his, his uh, diary, at least portions of it. Uh, it was very helpful to me. Uh, Piper's summary of these different things uh, did not give me a, a sense, I think right, a correct sense of his, um, the intensity of it and what was really going on in his head. Um, so just a, I would say a brief overview of his life, but I, I didn't summarize it, so it's not brief. It's, it's three slides long. So uh, <clears throat> his father died at, at age 46 when David was nine. Oh, well, I'm sorry. He was born, he was born in 1718 uh, in Connecticut, in Hayden, Connecticut. His contemporaries were John and Wesley, uh, I'm sorry, John Wesley uh, and Jonathan Edwards, who turned 14 at, at the same year he was born. Uh, Benjamin Franklin turned 12. George uh, Whitfield uh, turned three. The, the great, great uh, awakening was just over the horizon, uh, and Brainerd would live through both waves of that in the, the 40s, I'm sorry, the mid-30s, uh, 1730s and 40s. Um, <clears throat> His father was Hezekiah, a Connecticut legislator, a rigorous Puritan with a, with a, a strong view of what went on in the home, a strong view of authority and strictness at home. Um, Dorothy Brainerd, his mother, that was his mother, uh, he was the sixth child, a third, the third son. His father died when he was nine. His mother died when he was 14. And at that point, he went to live with, uh, across the river to live with his married sister, Jerusha. Uh, <clears throat> at 19, he inherited a farm and tried farming for a year, but his, his, uh, his heart was really in academia. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to study, he wanted to learn, and he was... A, uh, an academic, according to Piper, he, that was his, his bent. Um, in uh, 1738, he began to prepare to enter Yale, and he was still unconverted, according to his uh, view, and, uh, and, and yet he had committed to preparing for ministry. Um, he was a very religious, very strict religious person, but he wasn't converted, and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, and then, uh, let's see, he experienced conversion at age 21, and he dated it to a specific date, in 1739. And later on in 1739, he, he entered Yale. <clears throat> um, 
1740, um, I, th I think I missed something here. He, he, uh, he was sent home, or he went home once due to a outbreak of measles on the campus. He contracted that. He got fairly ill. He went home once for that, and then he was, he went back and later on was sent home again uh, <clears throat> due to a severe illness uh, later on, and I don't know why this wasn't diagnosed earlier, but later on it was determined to be tuberculosis. So uh, you can see how early he, he had it, and it eventually killed him at age 29. Um, so, let's see, in 1741 he, he returned to Yale, in early 42 he was expelled from Yale, and we'll see why, what happened kind of in between when he left and when he came back was the Great Awakening came on to campus, and uh, the students were very enthusiastic about that. A lot of things changed in their lives, but the, the administration was not happy about it. Uh, and he was heard to say some things that got him expelled. Um, in November of 1742, he was appointed as a missionary to the Indians. He served a church on Long Island during the winter and then went to his first assignment uh, in April 1743. Uh, and then he was reassigned a year later. He had one year, basically one year stints at three different, to three different tribes. Uh, so, in 1744, he was reassigned to uh, Indians along the Delaware in Pennsylvania. In uh, June of 1745, he began preaching to the Indians in New Jersey, Crossweeksung, which you can't find today. It must be kind of a general area that was known then, but it's, it's not known today. Uh, and, that, and then in November 1746, he was too ill to continue uh, ministry. And uh, he tried recuperating uh, at uh, Edward's house. In 1747, he made one last visit. And then he came, home, came back to Edward's house, and he died there uh, in uh, October of 1747 at age 29. He was attended by another Jerusha, <laughs> uh, Edward's daughter. And this, the, the sad thing is that she tended to him. They actually became close. I hear different stories, different sources say they actually got engaged, and then they, and other, others that it was just very close relationship. Uh, but she died four months later after he did of the same disease. Um, one, one of the questions I had is why, why they didn't understand that it was contagious. And maybe they did at one level, uh, or maybe they became aware gradually that it was, but it wasn't thought by the medical community to be contagious at the time, uh, which just seems, seems odd to us. <clears throat> there was a 
a few, few years earlier in England, um, uh, one doctor proposed that it was contagious but by observations he made. Uh, but <clears throat> still at this time, it was considered to be inherited. So um, that's, that's, uh, that, that was a question that occurred to me. Um, so that is my slideshow. Um, I, I think looking at his, his what, what his life like was before, was before conversion, and then looking at his conversion helps to understand the kind of the really small summarized <laughs> idea or view we have. Uh, uh, it almost seems like a mystical, mystical experience that he had. Um, but I, after reading some of his diary, I came to see it as being uh, just the way God works. And some of it's, it, some of it's, it's more radical. More, we're more aware of what's going on when he con converts our heart, uh, brings, uh, when he brings the new birth. Uh, some of us are not quite as aware of it. Uh, for him, it was a very intense experience. Um, by the way, uh, just two, two or three basic aspects of his life. He, he was ill all this time, of course. Uh, another thing he suffered from almost constantly, even in his youth was depression. He would have uh, uh, the blackest dejection off and on. At the very beginning of his diary, he says, I was, I think, from my youth somewhat sober and inclined rather to melancholy than the other extreme. Uh, is is pre-conversion time, uh, Piper summarized it as Religion with no true grace in the soul. Uh, another way of he had it, expressing it is uh, that he had a quarrel with God in his soul. Uh, the best way to see the, this, this lead up to his conversion is in, I think, in a couple of periods of his life or phases, if you will. The first would be a period when he had a very serious and careful, uh, strict even, devotion to religious duties, prayer, fasting, meditation, etc. He desired a true relationship with God and felt that by means of these duties, God would have favor on him. God would grant him salvation and a close relationship with him. However, also during this period, he had a great quarreling with God. Uh, that there was nothing, he quarreled with God that there was nothing he could do to commend himself to God. Uh, this was a period of struggle between his workings, his works, and his disappointments with the results. The second period of his pre-conversion, I would say, is coming to a point in time when he saw that his religious works had no good in them. Uh, nothing that would commend himself to God. I mean, he thought that off and on beforehand, but 
there was a time when he just gave himself to that, that, that view of his works. Uh, you could say that this was a point where he gave up, if you will, uh, not his duties, but his doing of them as a way of coming before God. This could also be described as a period of waiting, perhaps waiting on God, uh, or waiting for what he knew not, you know. So the first period, uh, I just want to pull some things out of his diary. Uh, this was during the years living with his sister and then right up to uh, uh, just before he went to Yale. Uh, What's pertinent, I think, in all of this was that the clarity in his, uh, that of what he was conscious of thinking about all of these things. Uh, I, I, I don't find many people have clarity about how they thought a few years ago or, or even this morning <laughs> for some of us. I'm one of those. Uh, but he... he Eventually, and he was, of course, he, he was writing a diary even during this time, uh, and then after his, his uh, new birth. Um, I was 20 years, he says, I was 20 years old, frequently longing from a natural inclination after a liberal education. When I was about 20 years of age, I applied myself to study and, and sometimes before was more than ordinarily excited to and in duty to and in duty, but now engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. Uh, I became very strict and watchful over my thoughts and words and actions and thought I, uh, I must be sober indeed because some of this is the spelling of the, 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 the times, uh, so I'm having a little trouble reading it, uh, designed to devote, my, uh, devote myself to the ministry and imagine that I did dedicate myself to the Lord. Uh, sometimes after enlargement in duty and considerable affection, I hoped I had made a good step towards heaven and imagined that God was affected as I was and that he would hear uh, such sincere cries. And, and sometimes when I withdrew for secret duties, that is secret prayer and, and fasting and such, and great distresses, I returned something comfortable, comfortable and, and hear this, and thus healed myself with my duties. So he has this distress of soul, and he heals that distress of soul by, by working. Okay? Now that, that's a way of of uh, avoiding the issue, really, I think. Avoiding the issue of how one is, uh, how one gains God's favor. Uh, <clears throat> I think that was very telling. Uh, uh, during that year, he read the Bible through twice and began to see more clearly that all his religion was legalistic and simply based on his own efforts. He would go back and forth between different states of thinking, being satisfied with his, his works, wondering why God wasn't uh, uh, pleased with that, and 
and then quarreling with God about that. He, uh, one aspect of his quarreling, there were multiple times when God granted him a view of his own, as he puts it, vile, hellish heart. And he was under great conviction. That, that did not make him run toward God and toward grace, the grace of God. It made him back up and back away from that, run from it, if you will. Uh, he was horrified by it. Uh, he was under great conviction, often rather than throwing himself on God's mercy, that sight would make him run away. On the other hand, I felt the power of a hard heart and supposed that it must be softened before Christ would accept me. And when I felt any meltings of heart, I hoped now the work was almost done. And hence, when my distresses still remained, I was wont to murmur at God's dealings with me. And I thought, when others felt their hearts soften, God showed them mercy, but my distresses remained still. I mean, he would look at people who had been converted and, and tried to imitate what happened to them, but he was still far from God. Um, the, these quarrelings with God became quite consciously theological. Uh, I, th I found that to be interesting that, uh, I mean, he was, he'd grown up in a theological home he had theological educate, uh, training of some sort. And so maybe, maybe that's why it was easy for this unconverted person to think this way. But he, he, uh, he found fault with God in several different areas. I found great fault with the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. And that my wicked heart and my wicked heart often... Um, wished for another way of salvation than by Jesus Christ. Uh, second one, the strictness of the divine law. He, he rebelled at that. For I found it was impossible for me after my utmost pains to answer the demands of it. I often made new resolutions and as often broke them. Another thing was and, and, well, you, you see here how different non-Christians come at salvation, right? Some of them work hard to get what they want. Others, um, perhaps I'm among them who, who, uh, who was lawless, if you will. Uh, but, but God works through, he works past those things eventually. Another thing was that they quarreled with that, that faith alone was the condition of salvation and that God would not come down to lower terms, that he would promise life and salvation upon my sincere and hearty prayers and endeavors. Uh, that word in Mark um, 16, 16, that he believeth not shall be damned, cut off all hope, and I found faith was the sovereign gift of God. That was in Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 8. Faith was the sovereign gift of God that I could not get it as of myself and could not oblige God 
You hear that? Could not oblige God to bestow it on me by any of my performance. Another thing was that I could not find out what faith was uh, uh, or what, what it was to believe and come to Christ. I read the calls of Christ made to the weary and heavy laden, but I could find no way that he directed them to come in. I thought I would gladly come if I knew how, though the path of duty directed uh, were ever so difficult. Okay. And then a last thing, another thing that I found uh, a great inward opposition to was the sovereignty of God. I could not bear that it should be wholly at God's pleasure to save or damn. Uh, me, just as he would. That, that passage in Romans uh, 9.23 was a constant vexation to me. I didn't pull that up here, especially verse 21. The reading or meditating on this always destroyed my seeming good frames, dispositions, I think is how you read that. When I thought I was almost humbled and almost resigned to God's sovereignty, the reading or thinking on this passage would make my enmity against the sovereignty of God appear. Now, it's this, it's, it's this sort of struggle, really, that gives me some empathy with, uh, just reading this, give me some empathy with those who have this battle, whether it's a non-Christian, as Brainerd was at this time, or even a fellow Christian who struggles with uh, what we call the doctrines of grace. For my own part, I came to these teachings with a measure of joy, although <laughs> it was kind of an ignorant, uh, I was ignorant out of, uh, of the full extent of what that meant, uh, of what I so joyfully accepted. But, but to hear this battle in Brainerd's uh, own words gives me a, a measure of compassion for him and, and others. So this was one period of his pre-conversion. Another one, uh, a second period, um, was uh, a time of giving up, if you will, of, of realizing that he just could not, his works, which he worked so hard at, even if he had accomplished them, would not commend himself to God. Um, For about three or four days, my soul was thus distressed, uh, especially at some times, at some, at some turns, when for a few moments I um, seemed to myself lost and undone, but then would shrink back immediately from the sight because I dared not venture myself into the hands of God as wholly helpless. Uh, and at the disposal of his divine pleasure. I dared, not, I dared not to see that important truth concerning myself, that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Um, and then he tells, let's see, yeah, he, he, he goes on to tell how this came home to him in, in a way that I think is is like the beginnings of God's workings in his heart, where he took this, these struggles and solidified them into, what, into an understanding 
of his true condition. Um, I was brought quite to a stand, I think it says, as finding myself uh, totally lost. I had thought many times before that the difficulties in, in my way were very great, but now I saw in, in another and very different light that it was forever impossible for me to do anything towards helping or delivering myself. Uh, I then thought of blaming, blaming myself that I had not done more and been more engaged while I had opportunity for it. Uh, it seemed now as if the lesson of doing was over, ever over and gone. But I instantly saw that let me have done what I would, it would no more have tended to my helping myself than what I had done that I had made all the pleas I ever could have made to all eternity not, and that all my pleas were vain. Um, the tumult that had been in my mind was now quieted and I was something eased of that distress which I felt while struggling against a fight of, of my, a sight of myself and of the divine sovereignty. Uh, so anyway, he, he goes on just to tell, just a kind of a thoroughgoing sight of himself that, that made him stop. Not, not his works necessarily, but stop seeing them in the way he had been seeing them. How, how God saved him. Um, at age 21, um, he relates this. I was walking in a dark, thick grove. Unspeakably glor unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. And I catch that phrase, of my soul. Okay. I do not mean any external brightness, for I saw no such thing, nor do I intend any imagination of a body or of light, somewhere away in third heavens or anything of that nature. It was an in inward, but it was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God, such as I never had before, nor anything which had the uh, same resemblance of it. I, I, stood, uh, I stood still and wondered and admired. I knew that I never had seen anything comparable to it for excellence and beauty. It was widely different from all the conceptions that I had ever had of God or things divine. Uh, my, my soul rejoiced to see such a God. I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. Okay, the, now take that, compare it to his rebellion against God's sovereignty. I mean, this is a complete change. Thus God, I trust, brought me to a hearty disposition to exalt him and set him on the throne and principally and ultimately to aim at his honor and glory as king of the universe. Um, he goes on to say, I wondered that all the world did not, did not see and comply with this way of salvation entirely by the righteousness of Christ. 
Um, now, I, I spent quite a bit of time on its pre, pre-conversion and conversion, uh, partly to partly to satisfy myself that uh, that I, I understood what happened to him, um, and, and partly to uh, put it before you if you've had some some view into how this conversion had happened to him before. Uh, he entered Yale the same year, later the same year, uh, began his studies for the ministry, uh, and of course he left, uh, one, uh, left twice and came back. Uh, um, when he came back once, uh, the second time, there had been, uh, the, uh, the Great Awakening was starting to have an effect on the students at least. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards says this about him. At this point, Brainerd had the unhappiness to have a tincture of that intemperate, indiscreet zeal, which was at that time too prevalent, and was led from his high opinion of others that he looked upon better than himself into such errors as were really contrary to the habitual temper of his mind. Uh, One instance of his misconduct, which wasn't one, it was two or three, really, gave great offense to the rulers of the college, even to the degree that they expelled him. Uh, one of the things he said, and, and if you remember the faults, I mean, this is, we're getting into the faults here, <laughs> some of the faults. Uh, one instance happened when he and two or three more of his uh, friends were alone in the hall together uh, after Mr. Whitsley, one of the tutors, had been to prayer there with the scholars. Mr. Whitsley, having been uh, unusually pathetical in prayer, one of Brainerd's friends on this occasion asked him what he thought of Mr. Whitsley, and he made answer, he has no more grace than this chair. Now, he, he wasn't quite alone like he thought. He, 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 he thought this was a private conversation. Someone overheard this. It became known to the administration. They called his friends on the carpet. They called him on the carpet and, and kind of compelled them, compelled them to uh, say what happened there. Their uh, remedy for this, they thought, was to uh, make him publicly apologize before the assembly, assembled students. Uh, he refused to do that. Um, Later on, he did regret this and uh, tried several times to make amends uh, to no avail. There was a law in Connecticut that no minister could be installed unless he had graduated from Yale or Harvard or a European university. Uh, so that, that cut off his, his hopes of entering ministry. Uh, Piper comments that God is at work for the glory of his name and the good of his church, even when the good intentions of his servants fail, and even when that failing is uh, 
owing to sin or carelessness. He speculates that if Brainerd had graduated, he would, he would have served a quiet ministry in some church and perhaps an academic position, uh, maybe lived longer, <laughs> uh, and his service to the Indians would never have happened. And he said that he's tempted to, uh, he being Piper, he's tempted to speculate whether the modern missionary movement that was so uh, repeatedly inspired by Brainerd's missionary life would have happened if uh, Brainerd had not been expelled from Yale and cut off from his hopes of pastorate. Um, in the summer of 1742, a group of ministers uh, who were sympathetic to the Great Awakening uh, called the New Lights, uh, if you read some, do some reading of the period of the time, there's the new lights and the old lights, and the old lights felt that they were conserving something, and the new lights were uh, beginning to experience this new awakening. Um, they licensed him to preach. Uh, there were attempts to get him reinstated at Yale, but that failed. Uh, when it failed, the suggestion was made that Brainerd become a missionary to the Indians, uh, and under the sponsorship of a society with a very long name. Uh, the Commissioner, uh, the, the Society in Scotland for Propagating Christian Knowledge. Uh, uh, in 1742, in November, he was examined for his fitness for this, this work and appointed as a missionary to the Indians. Uh, he served uh, a church on Long Island during the winter and then went to uh, the Housatonic Indians near Stockbridge, Massachusetts, arriving there in April of 1743. Oh, some of the things he did there uh, while, while trying to learn the language uh, from a veterinary missionary, he was able to start a school for the Indians, uh, Indian children. He translates some of the Psalms into uh, their language. In 1744, he was reassigned to the Indians along the Delaware. Uh, uh, he was examined by the Newark, New Jersey Presbyterian, ordained there in 1744. And he remained there for a year. Uh, these were two uh, assignments where he didn't really see a lot of, a lot of, uh, Res, uh, positive results, uh, a lot of fruit. But in uh, June 1745, he made his first preaching tour to the Indians at Crosswicksung, New Jersey. Uh, during this time, God moved in amazing power and brought awakening blessing to the Indians. Within a year, there were 130 persons in this growing assembly of believers. Uh, there was 80 uh, baptisms the first year, if, if I remember the number right. Uh, Brainerd stayed with these Indians until he was too sick to minister. And then, uh, as I said before, he left uh, in November 1746, trying to recuperate at, uh, <laughs> at the house of uh, Edwards. And then, of course, he, he died in 
He made one last trip to his Indian friends uh, in 1747 and then went back and died in Edward's house of tuber tuberculosis in October. Piper identifies uh, a list of his sufferings and struggles. Uh, the constant sickness that we mentioned before, uh, it, it, it's, this illness was quite often debilitating with fevers, uh, violent coughing, chest pains, back pains. Uh, he was sometimes, he says, almost bereaved of the exercise of my reason by the extremity of the pain. He, uh, he struggled with relentless uh, recurring depression. Uh, some said, some family members later on said that this was a, there was a streak of depression in the family. Uh, after his, uh, he said that there was a difference between the depression he suffered before and after his conversion. After his conversion, there seemed to be a rock of electing love, Piper's words, under him that would catch him so that in his darkest times, he could still affirm the truth and goodness of God, uh, even though he couldn't sense it for a time. He struggled with loneliness. Uh, I mean, I think today we would, we would want to see missionaries go out to the field, not alone, but uh, with companions. Uh, and he, was, he felt quite alone. Most of the talk I hear, he says, is either Highland Scotch or Indian. I have no fellow Krishna to whom I might unbosom myself and lay open my spiritual sorrows and with whom I might take sweet counsel in conversation uh, about heavenly things and join in social prayer. Uh, these these uh, missionary uh, times were uh, uh, extremely difficult, extre immense external hardships, as Piper puts it. He, he suffered from lack of suitable food, uh, from cold and exposure, troubles with his horse, uh, lack of sleep, hard labor. I mean, he had everywhere he went when he moved from one place to another, uh, except for one occasion, he pretty well had to build himself a place to live. Um, uh, he, he struggled with a bleak outlook on nature, and you might not wonder why when everything seemed to be, nature seemed to be against him. Uh, others were quite different than this. Edwards saw mountains and waste places as a setting for divine disclosure. Brainerd saw only a howling desert. Uh, and so on. Uh, Brainerd struggled to love the Indians. Uh, it's useful, I think, to look at his diaries in this respect. Uh, uh, and, and I can imagine that, that a pastor might struggle with that sometimes. A pastor might struggle with loving me, <laughs> you know, loving his flock, but uh, he, he did too. Uh, often he felt great love and affection for his Indians, my Indians, he would call them, um, crying out to God for them in prayer. Other times he seemed empty of affection or compassion. 
uh, for their souls. And he was guilty about, felt guilty about that. His compassion would simply go flat, as Piper puts it. He struggled to stay true to his calling. I mean, during this time, he got several calls to come and pastor this church or that church. And, and it was, uh, as he puts it, it was tempting to, to uh, take those calls. I could have no other, I could have no freedom in thought, the thought of any other circumstances or business in life than his Indians, his mission work. All my desire was the conversion of the heathen, as he puts it, and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself with hopes of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintance, and enjoying worldly comforts. So the struggle was obviously there, but he held to his post. In all these struggles, he pressed on with his work and his practical necessities. Uh, in spite of these sufferings, and that's not to say that he wasn't just laid flat sometimes. I mean, his illness and his depression just laid him flat sometimes. In spite of these sufferings, he pressed on and even flourished under these tribulations. Uh, the last uh, point, the major point uh, section here is uh, his influence. Um, Piper says, I think the reason Brainerd's life has had such powerful effects on people is that in spite of all his struggles, he never gave up his faith or his ministry. He was consumed with a passion to finish his race and honor his ma master and spread the kingdom and advance in personal holiness. It was this unswerving allegiance to the cause of Christ that makes the bleakness of his life glow with glory so that we can understand Henry Martin, another, uh, another missionary. When he wrote as a student in 1802, I long to be like him. Uh, Piper goes into some of the means he used uh, uh, to, uh, for pursuing greater and greater holiness and usefulness uh, prayer, fasting, study, uh, and his study was mixed with prayer. His impact on Edwards himself, um, he quotes Edwards here on this. I would conclude my observations on the merciful circumstances of Mr. Brainerd's death uh, with acknowledging with thankfulness the gracious dis dispensation of providence to me and my family in so ordering that he should be cast hither to my house in his last sickness and should die here so that we had opportunity for such acquaintance and conversation with him and to show, and to show him kindness in such circumstances and to see his dying behavior, to hear his dying speeches, to receive his dying counsels, and to have the benefit of his dying prayers. Edwards, uh, Piper says, Edwards said this, even though he must have known it probably cost him the life of his daughter to have Brainerd in his house with that disease. Uh, uh, Brainerd 
uh, I mean, sorry, Edwards wrote, he, he, he compiled, collated this diary and published it, uh, and it's been in, in print ever since then. Many missionaries found encouragement and inspiration for their work in, in, his, uh, in his story, as well as finding identification with him in uh, his struggles. Um, another effect of this was that, uh, of his life, was that um, uh, there, was, there, there were Christians uh, in the area who knew all about what happened at Yale and were dissatisfied with uh, the th how it went, his expulsion from Yale, and the, the lack of sympathy for the Great Awakening at Yale and Harvard. Uh, and uh, they, they uh, in response to that, founded Princeton and Dartmouth, uh, originally as Christian colleges, of course, uh, in, in response to that. Um, another, another effect of this, too, was that the founder of Dartmouth um, he read about his mission work to, to the Iroquois, which I think was his first assignment. Uh, Brainerd felt that was a time of failure on his part because he didn't see fruit. But this, this man uh, read this and, uh, and was motivated to go there and do mission work among the Indians and had, had fruit then. Uh, he became, he, he founded a school there among the Iroquois for white and Indian. And, uh, and later on that whole school and all the students moved and it became Dartmouth. Uh, and in fact, if you go to the Dartmouth site, you'll see a little early drawing of Indians coming to which I'm sure was kind of fanciful. Uh, they did not come in, in their loincloth and everything to, to school. They probably came uh, differently. But the, uh, it was originally a school for the Indians. The most awesome effect, and these are Piper's words, uh, the most awesome effect of Brainerd's ministry is the same as the most awesome effect of every pastor's ministry. There are a few Indians, perhaps several hundred, who owe their everlasting life to the direct love and ministry of David Brainerd. Uh, I think it's also, I mean, just it's, it's also just as we end here, close. Um, it's useful to think about the question, and maybe you have other questions, of what happened to the Indians? <laughs> uh, they, they suffered what a lot of Indians suffered. They were promised land here if they would move from here. <laughs> and then they were promised land over here when the, if they would move there. So they were pushed further and further westward. Um, you know, Ohio, uh, Kansas. Eventually, they, they were pushed into territory in northeast Oklahoma where there were already Indians and there was issues there. Um, so that, that's, now what happened to the churches? I, 
which was really the more, more, more important question, I was not able to find out. Uh, Piper kind of gives a tantalizing, like, like he knew, knew something that I couldn't find in the sources, was uh, that he felt like the, the biographies of some of these Indians would be even more powerful and useful. Uh, so he must have access to something that I couldn't find. Uh, Brainerd himself, uh, occasionally you can find in his diaries uh, certain sympathy for the state and the condition of the Indians and how they were treated. Uh, the Indian affairs, he says, are very unsettled. They have no land to live on but what the Dutch people lay claim to and threaten to drive them from. They have no regard to the souls of the poor Indians, and by what I can learn, they hate me because I came to preach to them. And it's things like that occasionally you find in his, in his diary. Are there any other questions or observations? Right, yeah. Pain, pain is not the enemy. It's useful to consider what, what might be then. Uh, but, but also, I, I think it's, it's a life like this, and maybe, I mean, you can look at your own life, I think, and see this too. I can. That among all the mysteries in the world, the mysteries in life, the human heart, what goes inside the human heart is, is a mysterious, mysterious thing, I think, that we, 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 don't, have a, we don't always have a, a good view into. But who, who does have a good view into that and who is working on that is God. Um, so it's useful to think that, to consider that. 30 more seconds. Anybody have any, anything further? Right, yeah. And for how he consciously thought about those things, uh, he consider, how he considered them. Um, I think I read somewhere that he traveled on horseback through that kind of conditions for 3,000 miles over his ministry. So there you go. Okay, that's it. Thanks.